go with me to Hebrews 3. And if you've got one of those little ribbon things in your Bible, or you can use a prayer card or whatever, go to uh, Matthew 7. We're going to go back and forth between the two. And we're go- we'll have some Old Testament stuff to do along the way. Have you ever met somebody who was just prodigious? They were a prodigy. You know what that word? You know that word? Either in the field of art or dance or music or athletics or even public speaking, you heard them or saw them do their thing at an early age and you thought, wow, this person's really going to go somewhere. Have you, have you had that happen? I remember there's a friend of mine that, um, that uh, is probably the greatest singer I've ever sung with. And um, uh, he, um, just as a teen, when I first met him at like 19 years old, I thought, wow, this guy's really going to do something. And he has. Wouldn't it be interesting to note, it is to me at least, that according to Isaiah's prediction in Isaiah 53, that although Jesus obviously was a prodigy, that in some ways he appeared as an unexceptional person. An unexceptional person. Uh, The Bible says in Isaiah 53 later, um, later portions of that little verse. It says, uh, um, I want to quote this in the King James because that's how I remember it. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is nothing that we should desire him. In other words, the idea that he is not going to be remarkable, he won't be, um, there won't be anything about his visage or his appearance that will just kind of automatically make him head and shoulders uh, to be dra- people to be drawn to him. And yet they were. I find it really intriguing that that those things are true. Now, today we're going to consider two texts of Scripture, (coughs) excuse me, that that will emphasize Jesus' exceptionability. The first, in Hebrews, is going to show us how Jesus compared with leaders who came before. The second is, in Jesus' words himself, are going to remind us how Jesus demonstrated his greatness by the authority with which he taught, even before his resurrection. So that's kind of where we're going to go, Hebrews 3 and and Matthew 7. Uh, Tina, we've got envelopes on the table today. The next couple of weeks, we're going to take offering for the Sunday school for our missions projects. Okay. Yeah. Today and uh, Halloween, in almost to Halloween, okay. Uh, but uh, this, this helps us do um, community of faith, the, the work that we do there that helps us uh, with the Seaworth work. And uh, even, it, don't we do some work still with Honduras out of this fund? Not really? Okay. But I know we've got several of you who are involved in that. So that's what that's for. Um, um, if you want to give, give a check, write it to the church, but stub it for discovery class. And uh, it'll get to us that way. Okay. All right. Now, um, I don't. I'm not going to give you any more background on the book of Hebrews because we dealt with that last week. But, but what I want you to want to say about um, uh, the Matthew portion is this is right at the end of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount that begins with the first verses of Matthew five and goes through seven. Um, it was the first of it was in the first of his three years of earthly ministry. He was on his first general tour of Galilee where he kind of grew up and then came back to. And he spoke with this amazing authority here 
that only could belong to God. So as the book of Hebrews is going to describe how Jesus is divine and is the authoritative son of God who fulfilled God's promises, Matthew is going to show us how Jesus' one-of-a-kind greatness was revealed in how he taught and in the things he did. So let's go there. Uh, Steve Blair, can I get you to read Hebrews 3, the first six verses? Thank you, Steve. Now, let's go back to verse 1. Let me build a bridge from last week to this week. Last week, we ended uh, where we ended with about verse 10 in chapter 1. Uh, 23 verses are going to ensue between that and what we're going to deal with today that use, uh, in the process, use six Old Testament scripture passages um, to kind of give us uh, a picture of who Jesus is his nature, and his work. And then it comes to the end of it, and there are several of these in the book of Hebrews, but it comes to the end of it, and as we begin chapter 3, as Steve read, it begins with one, what word? Therefore. <coughs> At least mine does. Does yours begin with brothers, therefore? Mine says, therefore, holy brothers. So either way, the idea is, it's going to give us, when, when you read a therefore in the Bible, what you need to think anytime you read the book, the word therefore, is what is it? You ready? Therefore. Okay? In other words, it's usually referring to something that came before it. And so those 23 verses before are what that therefore is therefore. Okay? So it's going to make a case, and we're going to kind of deal with that. Do what? You think she'd be proud? I'm not so sure, Darla. Um, you know, I think she would be shaking her head a lot of times. Uh, now, so, uh, all of this teaching about his work and his life and his nature, now, let's apply it, he begins to say in verse 1 of chapter 3. So, I'm going to ask you here, we're going to do a little excursion through the book of Hebrews in just a second, but why are these people that he's addressing known as brothers and sisters? Well, there's two or three answers to that. First of all, they're Jewish, Remember, we said last week that his primary recipients of this letter are Jewish Christians, so Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah. So they are kind of literally brothers and sisters. They're from, um, from a singular heritage, and so he can address them that way for one reason. But secondly, they're known as brothers and sisters here by his own admission here, or by his own work, is because they have... Um, they have acknowledged, according to the NIV, they've acknowledged the good news about Jesus. Okay? So they are, they are, kind of have some kind of family Jewish heritage, but they acknowledge the good news of Jesus. Now, and it says here that they've acknowledged him as 
Um, if, if, if the NIV is, is like what the passage that you're reading from, it's going to call him the apostle. Now, I find that interesting. I don't think of Jesus often as an apostle. But what we need to think of is that you have, they've acknowledged him as, as an apostle. In this sense, what you need to think of, I think, is that he has been sent. The literal word, apostle, literally has to do something with an idea of a messenger who has been sent. That's what the other apostles were sent out uh, from Jerusalem in those early days of the faith to spread the gospel. So uh, Jesus himself was sent by God. Don't we believe that? That's kind of that reference. And then the second reference here is that he is, um, he is acknowledged not only as the great, great apostle here, but he's, a, he's a, acknowledged here as the high priest of our confession. I really love that phrase. But I'm not the only one who loves that phrase. The, word high, the, the phrase high priest is a familiar and very favored expression, description for Jesus in the book of Hebrews. I've often wondered, okay, can I just take a little, okay, don't brand me yet as a heretic, okay, but I've always wondered, kind of as I've studied this over the years, um, the writer of Hebrews is very interested in priestly function, very, very interested in what the priests do and describes that in great detail all the way through and refers to Jesus, we're going to see here in just a minute, often, time after time after time after time, as the great high priest. So it made me wonder, since we don't know who wrote it, if maybe the person had a priest in his family, came from some priestly background, I don't know. But it, that's just something to think about. He certainly knows a lot about what priests do. Now go with me. I put several references here. We're just going to hit them rapid fire to see what, what I'm trying to, to illustrate what I'm talking about. Look at 217. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Catch that? All right, go to 414. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Okay, again, this idea of high priest. Look at 5.5. Five. So also Christ didn't glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, in other words, the idea is God has made him a great high priest. Look at 5.10. He's being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that's, that's kind of a mysterious deal that, that he uncovers here. Next week, by the way, we're going to be in Hebrews 4 and 5, so we'll uncover a little bit more of this. Look at 6.20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, again, according to the order of Melchizedek. Do you say it Melchizedek or Melchizedek? I don't care. I just thought there was probably some... Somebody there who's smarter than me who thought, oh, he's saying that wrong. <laughs> Look at 726, and we'll, we'll go back to the text. But for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So does it sound to you like it does to me that, that the Hebrews writer, whoever it is, is very interested in this concept of Jesus as our high priest? And I love the thought here. He's the high priest of our confession, it says here in 3.1. Uh, that's a, just a wonderful, wonderful thing um, that we're going to deal with here. Now, 
The word that goes in your first blank here in, under verse 2 is the word faithful. And the writer of Hebrews here in the second verse of third chapter is going to talk about the faithfulness of a, a great hero of faith from the Old Testament. You could argue that there's no greater character in the Old Testament than the leader, Moses. Okay? And so the, the writer here is going to go after referencing Moses as a faithful one and Jesus as also being faithful. Both Moses and Jesus were found faithful. Now, somebody go with me. Um, this is interesting because I've been reading this in my quiet time in the last couple of weeks. Go with me to Book of Numbers, right? That's the fourth book of the Bible, I think. Did I get that right? All right, Book of Numbers. Let's look at a description of Moses. We're going to go to Numbers 12. When you get there, somebody read verse 3 and then jump down to verse 7 and 8. Numbers 12, 3, and then verse 7 and 8. These are descriptions of Moses. By the way, let me give you some context. Moses' brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron, had both complained. They'd said, who do you think you are? Can you imagine sibling rivalry like that? They were all human, right? But Moses was, you know, obviously God's man, and they kind of didn't like it. They didn't like having to obey him, for instance. And who set you up? Well, God had set him up, right? So here is God's answer about who Moses is. Somebody read verse 3 and verse 7 and 8. Interesting, this is God talking, who says to Moses' siblings, don't you dare speak against him. Wouldn't it be wonderful to at some point in your life or at the end of your life for God to come forth and say, he's my guy, she's my woman. God literally does this in the context of Moses' life, in the, in the most difficult time in his life, really, you could argue. God says, he's been faithful, he's humble. I talked to him face to face, he said. Now, so there's this idea that Moses was a faithful leader, but there's also a comparison here. Look at, go back to Hebrews and go back to chapter 2. Here's what the Bible says about Jesus. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom all things are all things, and through whom all are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, is it harder to be faithful in a good time or in a hard time? Uh, you know, you could argue it could be harder in a good time. But literally, the, the issue here is that, is that God is saying, he was, Jesus was faithful to me in suffering. Okay, look at verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So the idea here is that Jesus was faithful in his life and faithful in his death, and because of that, 
God himself defended him. How? By raising him from the dead. Now, it's one thing to have God vouch for your character as he did in Numbers 12 with Moses. It's another thing for God to vouch for your character and your faithfulness and your witness and, um, and your tenacity in the, in, the, uh, in the midst of suffering by saying, I'll rise him from the dead. I'll raise him from the dead, which he did with Jesus. Okay, So there's this kind of comparison that's beginning here. Remember now, this whole book is about comparisons. We compared Jesus last week to the angels and to their message. This week we're comparing him to Moses. All right, now look at verse 3. This is going to be a head-to-head comparison. Or you ever do kind of a side-by-side comparison with products or that kind of thing? Um, I, I enjoy sometimes reading Consumer Reports or a Motor Trend or some of those where they get a car and they have two cars that are kind of similarly priced and similarly um, equipped, but it'll... it'll do a, a kind of a side-by-side comparison or head-to-head comparison. That's what we're going to do here between Jesus and, um, and the leader, Moses, from the Old Testament. Uh, the Bible is going to use two, the writer here, is going to two, use two aspects of culture from the biblical era, era that they would understand, okay? Um, and it's interesting here, having invoked in verse 2 the faithfulness of Moses, and the faithfulness of Jesus. You would think that in verse 3 he's going to then say, but Jesus was more faithful than Moses. He really doesn't do that. Even though that could, that could be said to be true. What he does is he goes back and instead of comparing their faithfulness, he just invokes their faithfulness in verse 2. But in verse 3, in this head-to-head comparison, he's going to use a couple of aspects of culture here. He's going to use the idea of a house in verse 2. But what you and I need to understand is the word that's used for house is not the word that you and I would think of as a structure, okay? Would somebody go to Ephesians 2.19? Cindy, can I get you to go to Ephesians 2.19? Back to the left just a little bit. The same word is going to be used by Paul that's used here as a house. You see the word house in verse 3, okay? Uh, In verse 2, I'm sorry, uh, as Moses was in all his house, for in verse 3, um, so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Okay, this is uh, two nineteen Ephesians. The word household, you are members of God's household, is the word that the Hebrews writer chooses here. So he's not talking about a structure, not talking about a dwelling. He's talking about a family. The word, the more, most appropriate word, and the one I want you to put in the blank here, is household. And what, what the author is saying here is that Jesus built, and Paul references it here in Ephesians 2 that Cindy read, that Jesus built a household of faith. He built the house. A household of faith. Okay? Now, the second thin image that's used here from biblical culture is the idea of the role of a son in the house or, or in the household, okay? Now, go back to 1.6. So if your Bible's like mine, I can just look across the page. Somebody read verse 6. 1.6.
Anybody got it? And again, when God brings his firstborn the firstborn. There's that idea here and in uh, Colossians and other places, there's this idea of Jesus as the firstborn. And we talked about that not being, um, uh, talking about his human birth, but first in a line, first in a series. Um, and the idea here is the firstborn in a Jewish household, what was their role? It was a supreme role. What was their authority? It was supreme authority. The idea here, the first poorest position, is the highest position in the household. So first of all, he goes after this as he's going to compare Jesus to Moses. He's going to say, you know what? One of them was a member of the household. The other one built the household. And then he's going to say, and remember that that one was the firstborn, the one of position and authority. Why would Jesus here, writing to Jewish believers in the first century, want to compare, uh, why would the writer here, I'm sorry, want to compare Jesus to Moses in particular? He was their hero. He was their hero. There wasn't a greater hero from the Old Testament days. They, they still read daily, weekly, from the law of Moses. All right. Even though it was God's law, it was given through Moses. He was the lawgiver. He was the one that, that freed them, helped free them from bondage, led them out. There wasn't a greater figure in the Old Testament. So when the Hebrews writer is writing to Jewish people here saying, um, I want to tell you, you can put your confidence in Jesus. He goes after comparing him to one of the greatest heroes they've ever known. Maybe the greatest hero they've ever known. All right. Okay, now in verse 4, he goes after the thought that the existence of a house presupposes a builder. The, the existence of a house presupposes a builder. All right? Now, um, um, if I went to um, uh, east, east, northeast Edmond and began to look at, at collections of homes, and I recognize that there is uh, a really interesting collection of bricks and mortar and, uh, and uh, framing and glass work, um, I, I, I would be kind of silly, would I not, to say, well, that's kind of random. Look at what just happened here. Fred, when I went to your house, it would have offended you to say, well, look what you found here. Fred built the house, he and his son. Fred designed it and his son built it. The existence of a home, the existence of a house implies a builder, doesn't it? Uh, and, and different people build in different ways. They have different style, they have different uh, character, treatments, and those kinds of things. The existence of a house uh, kind of implies a builder here. You can read about it in John 1 and John, in Colossians 1. It's going to say, Jesus was the builder. God was the builder through his son, through the word of his son. God through Jesus made all that exists. So he's still kind of going with this house idea. Verse 5 reminds us that God 
in Moses gave the Jewish people a defining figure of their history. Moses was the defining figure of Jewish history. But I want you to go with me to the fifth book in the Bible, to Deuteronomy 18. I want you to see what God says to Moses. Predicting the future. Deuteronomy 18. If somebody would, read verse 15 and verse 18. This is a God talking to Moses. And go to 18, Mark. If Moses was the defining figure of Jewish history, and he, he was previous to this time, but interestingly here, God speaks to Moses of a greater prophet yet to come. You could argue, based on verse 5 here in, uh, in Hebrews 3, that Moses served Jesus even before Jesus was born. You could argue that Moses' faith was placed in the one yet to come. Isn't it interesting that when you and I think about faith and salvation by faith, Okay, isn't it interesting to think that the same person that you put your faith in to be saved was identical to the person that Moses put his faith in to be saved? It was just Moses was looking forward to him. You and I have accepted his message looking back. He's still the central figure of history, and that's one of the points that the Hebrews writer is making here. Somebody read to us again verse 6. And then we're going to go over to Matthew. Hebrews 3, 6. For Christ is faithful as the Son of God's house, and we are his house. And in, indeed, we hold firmly to our confidence in the hope in which we glory. Isn't it beautiful how he says, Christ was faithful over his house. That household idea. Christ claims rule over God's household. But how? By his redemption of it. He claims rule over it because he redeemed it. Who's in the house? Who's in the household? Uh, I love that, Cindy. It's me. Yeah, it's us. All of those who have accepted his son by faith are members of this household. And Christ rules over it. Isn't that a great, beautiful picture? Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go now back to the left a little ways to Matthew 7. This is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? We're going to look at words in red now. Okay? And um, we're going to encounter, guess what? Another therefore. Isn't that interesting? You'll never read the word therefore again quite the same, will you? We're going to go to 7, all right, 24. My Bible begins with the word therefore. How does yours begin? 724, okay. Um, somebody read verse 24 down to 29. Familiar story. You're going to hear the little song going in your head. The wise man built his house upon the rock. Okay. Somebody read 24 down through 29. Like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Okay, now... Let me kind of connect the dots with you. By the way, in just a few minutes, we're going to need to read from Isaiah 28, verse 16 and 17. Will somebody find that so we don't have to hunt it then? Thank you, Cindy. Um, all right, now, look here. There's another therefore here. Jesus has been teaching for three chapters, more or less, all right? Whereas the book of Hebrews is going to talk about Jesus' preeminence, his superiority, his first place in all things. What Matthew's going to do is demonstrate Jesus' authority through his teaching. And this is kind of the, the, uh, um, the zenith, really, the pinnacle of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's going to use, we're going to use here this little story about the wise man and the foolish man building their house. Now, uh, again, we're using this metaphor of a house. Um, uh, the sermon... The entire sermon, really, and, it, and by the way, there was a book written um, several years ago that, that uh, uh, put a particular spin on the Sermon on the Mount, and um, um, it, it's talking about uh, the be happy attitudes. I don't know if you remember that, that or not. It was actually a pretty good book, but just the title of it always made me think, we're cheapening this message a little bit. Because what Jesus is saying, beginning with chapter 5 and going all the way through verse 7, chapter 7, is that he is drawing a line in the sand and he's saying to everyone who hears him, you've got a radical choice to make whether or not to follow me. And here's what's going to ensue if you do. He promises some really good things. But he also says, this is a radical, hard choice. One of the things you and I have got to deal with is when Jesus calls us to follow him, when Jesus calls us here, if we want to use his metaphor here, there's a radical choice to make. If I'm going to build my house on Jesus, it's not going to necessarily be easy. It is not the way I'm going to drift. In, I'm not going to just drift into following Jesus or building my house on Jesus. It's going to be a decision I've got to make. And sometimes it will be a moment-by-moment -moment decision, and some of those decisions are going to be kind of hard. Okay, so with that as a backdrop, Cindy reads the story here that Jesus says, therefore, he's been teaching for, um, for really a, a long time. He's, and, and a lot of it's recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he says, he comes toward the end of it, and he says, therefore, here's what it's like. It's like you're going to go out and build a house. How are you going to build it? Okay, now, Jesus links these words that begin with some previous words of challenge then. Okay, now I've got to ask a question because I've never really gotten this right, I don't think. In verse 25, he says, the wise man built his house on rock. That was hard to do, by the way, as well. Okay, I remember my dad, skip way back in the day, some guy uh, told him that he had, a, he had a, a deal to dig out and he didn't take a tractor with him, he just took a shovel and... Uh, the guy said, in describing this thing that had to be fixed, oh, it's all just blow sand. You've probably heard him use the term blow sand. 
And it was nothing but sandstone. It was hard, it was rock. And he had to chip away at it all day long. It's not easy to build your house on the rock. It's much easier to excavate sand. But the issue is what's going to last here. So, he, um, uh, as I think of verse 25, I've I got to think about the storm here. It says the storm is going to come up. Now, what you and I need to recognize as, as we study this is that in that region, the land of Israel has a lot of seasonal rivers that flow from hills and mountains. Between rains, the riverbeds can be completely dry. But when rains fall in the higher elevations of Palestine, water rushes down those riverbeds in a torrent. Therefore, Jesus' illustration draws on what's familiar to them. They'll recognize if you built on a riverbed, you may regret it when the rains come. Although it may be really easy to do now because it's dry. So, um, I, I think we've got to kind of deal with this. Cindy, go to Isaiah 26, 28, and I want you to read verse 16 and 17. This is a prediction of Jesus' role in all of creation, one of those roles. The storm, is it just talking about hardship and trials in life? See, I've always taken it that way. That when the trials of life come along, will my faith be able to stand the test? Every one of us have had to put that to test, haven't we? But according to Isaiah, and I wonder if Jesus here, the real test will be judgment. He does talk about Jesus being the cornerstone upon which to build your faith. But he also says, there's one coming who's going to judge all. I, I find it really intriguing here. If the storm is trials, then, then I've got to build my house to, to stand up against that storm. But there's an issue here of judgment as well. One of these, Jesus believed. It's interesting because if you, if you get all your theology from the History Channel, you won't get this, okay? Jesus believed that at the end of all time, he would be the righteous judge. So, regardless of who you believe in, there's someone you're going to have to answer to. And there's only one. He's the preeminent one that Hebrews describes. And someday, I'm going to have to stand in front of him. So, do what you want to with... Um, you know, with the bumper sticker that says, uh, what's the bumper sticker that has all those little symbols on it, you know? Uh, what is it? Coexist. Coexist, yeah. Okay, I get that. I'm, I'm, I'm nice to lots of people, okay? <laughs> I really am. I know it's hard to believe being with me on Sunday, but I'm nice to most people. But one day, I'm going to stand in front of Jesus. Can, can you catch that picture? And it's going to depend on what I built my life upon, how that goes. And that's kind of what he's telling here. So Jesus contrasts, and I won't be able to have time today to read this, but he contrasts the decision of the wise man to build on the rock with the decision of the other guy to kind of take the easy way out and build on sand. And he's going to call that guy, and this is not a word that he uses lightly, he's going to call that guy a fool. 
Now, I want to read verse 26 because I think this is really interesting. I've never caught this before. Everyone who hears these words of mine, and by the way, in my Bible, that's capitalized with an M, capital M. Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who builds his house in the sand. And it talks about the house falling flat. What is Jesus claiming here? He's claiming to be God here. He's saying, build your life on me. Did you catch it? Where he, that word mine, how he uses it here, I think it's really, really important. Everyone who hears these words of mine, my words are important, he says. The most important. And doesn't act on them will be like a man who built his house. In other words, he's saying, my words are supreme. My words are the ones you need to build your life upon. The gospel is what you need to build your life on. If you don't do that. And by the way, uh, one commentator I read this week said he believes that no one missed this who originally heard it. They saw this as a claim to divinity. So he's going to close it with this idea that to have lived life ignoring the creator results in great loss. In verse 28 and 29, it's going to say that those that listened to him thought Man, I've never heard anything like this in my life. The word is unique. That's the word that's used in Hebrews. The word that he's a unique savior. He's a unique leader. He's a unique Lord. And his authority here was unique. Everybody else before him would quote some other uh, teacher, some other rabbi and say, and say uh, you have heard it said. Jesus says, you've heard it said. Yep, but I say. His word was supreme. I'm reading a book. I just finished it this week. Uh, this is by uh, Shauna Nequist, uh, who is one of my favorite young writers. She is, uh, uh, put in perspective, she's Bill Heibel's daughter and uh, has lived kind of an interesting life. But her writing style is really interesting. And she writes, I just want to give you a couple of thoughts here from the end of, uh, toward the end of this class today. She writes, she's, she's trying to uh, kind of go inward with her life and I've written in my journals just profusely over her words. But she says she's listening to um, a Christmas carol, a Christmas song that we've all heard and sung. Uh, oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of my dear Savior's birth. Long may the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. You ever thought about your soul had no worth till Jesus gave it worth. Isn't that interesting? Here's what she says. A soul is not required for a robot or for a machine or for a set of ideas or theories. But a soul is profoundly necessary for a human. It's from our souls that we love, that we feel, that we create, that we connect. Jesus' question is this. What does it profit you to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Here's what I want to encourage you to do. As you're trying to figure out what's next in your life, as you're trying to figure your way out of the current issue, whatever it is in your life, you could go to Barnes & Noble and look for the latest self-help book, and a lot of people do. 
lot of people do. Can I suggest maybe something else? Your soul was created, Fred, by an architect. Why don't you consult the architect, the builder? Wouldn't it make more sense? He's going to say anything else is like building your house at the bottom of a dry riverbed that one of these days is no longer going to be dry. Consult the architect. All right. We'll be in chapters 4 and 5 next week. See you. Have a great weekend.